I want to call your attention this morning to Luke chapter 5, and so you can be turning there as we make some adjustments real quick. The title of this morning's message is Escaping from the Religious Rut. A friend from Oklahoma saw me post something about that title on Facebook this morning, Escaping from the Religious Rut. He said before he put on his glasses, it looked like escaping from the religious nut. And I thought for a moment, that might be a better title. But we want to talk this morning about a problem that affects churches more significantly that may affect us, you as an individual from time to time. This idea of being in a religious rut. We've said it before, we've talked about before how the church in North America is limping along. Scholars tell us that there's something like 350,000 churches in North America. The average size, the median size church is 75 people. And that's not a problem. The problem is that most of those churches by far are not growing. And most Americans are not involved in church in any meaningful way. If you read Gallup and some of the other pollsters, they will consistently tell you that 40% of the American population represent active church attenders. But researchers in two different studies have gone back and looked not at what people said they did, but they looked at what people actually were doing. They checked attendance figures. They didn't interview people. They just looked at attendance figures. And they found that the true number of people in church on any given Sunday in America is closer to 17%. And that number is projected to drop in coming years. Among Southern Baptists, we're experiencing record low baptisms, 50-year lows. And depending on who you read and the research that I'm personally aware of out of New Orleans Baptist Theological Seminary, 70% of Baptist churches since 1983 have been plateaued or in decline. And that is still accurate today. 70% are plateaued or in decline. But here's the part you need to hear. There are more churches in decline now than there are plateaued. And we really are in a kind of religious rut. And we can talk about other churches, but we really need to just focus on ourselves as Southern Baptists and particularly at Wind Baptist Church. Escaping from the religious rut. You say, well, I'm sorry to hear about what's happening with churches, but Pastor... That's my story. That's where I live. I feel like I'm in a religious rut. I come to church. I attend. I go to Sunday school and I study the Bible and I attempt to read it and try to understand it, but I feel like I'm not getting anywhere in my walk with God. And I keep thinking to myself, there must be something more than this. I'm doing the right things. I've done it for years, but there's an incredible void inside of me that is never filled. And I'm experiencing a religious rut. You may be thinking to yourself. I want to read a passage of scripture this morning where I believe Jesus speaks to us about this problem by speaking to a group of people who were in it so deep 
They did not even realize how deeply they were caught in this religious rut. In Luke chapter 5, beginning in verse 27, we read, And after these things, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax office, and he said to him, Follow me. So he left all, rose up, and followed him. Then Levi gave him a great feast in his own house, and there were a great number of tax collectors and others who sat down with them. And their scribes and the Pharisees complained against his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus answered and said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Then they said to him, Why do the disciples of John fast often and make prayers, and likewise those of the Pharisees, but yours eat and drink? And he said to them, Can you make the friends of the bridegroom fast while the bridegroom is with them? But the days will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. Then he spoke a parable to them. No one puts a piece from a new garment on an old one, Otherwise, the new makes a tear, and also the piece that was taken out of the new does not match the old. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins, or else the new wine will burst the wineskins and be spilled, and the wineskins will be ruined. But new wine must be put into new wineskins, and both are preserved. And no one Having drunk old wine, immediately desires new, for he says, the old is better. How can you escape the religious rut? First, expect the conflict that always follows the Jesus follower. Expect it. Expect the conflict that always follows the Jesus follower. The words that Jesus spoke here were spoken in the home of Levi. Levi was a tax collector. He is also known as Matthew, the author of the first gospel. And as a tax collector, he made his living not by the taxes that he collected for the Roman government, but by the amount he could tack on top of those taxes by literally extorting it out of people. And that's how he made his living. And as you can imagine, people like that who were Jewish, who were working for the Romans, were seen as an awful kind of person, the worst kind of person. And of all the people Jesus could have walked up to in Capernaum and, and asked him to follow him, this is not the man you would expect him to choose. But he does. And he goes to him and he says, Levi, follow me. Now, I don't know what he had already known about Jesus. I don't know what he had already heard. He would have had the opportunity to hear the Sermon on the Mount probably. So we don't know what all was going on through his mind. But we do know this. When Jesus said, follow me, he left everything. He left the business. He got up and he began to follow Jesus. And he goes home and to celebrate his new relationship to God, he throws a party. And the only people he knows to invite 
are not the religious people who have ostracized him all his life, but are other people like him, other tax collectors. And Luke is very tactful. He just says, and others like them. And so they throw this big party, and they're going to celebrate what's happened in Levi's life, and they invite all of these secular, irreligious people, and Jesus goes to the party. Now, I want to say two things clearly up front about Jesus going to this party. First of all, I want you to know Jesus didn't go to the party to be, to be influenced by the people at the party. You know, sometimes people say, well, I'm going to be a witness to people, and I'm, I'm going to go into these certain social situations, and your, your influence is null because you're a full participant in everything that is happening at the party. But Jesus goes, and he's going not to be influenced by them, but to influence the others. You need to know that. Also, you need to see this. Jesus did not center his ministry in the synagogue and expect those people to come to his synagogue class on Sunday morning. And I think that speaks to us pretty quickly, doesn't it? We want more people to come. We want more people to come to our Sunday school class or our Bible study group. But we've got to follow the master and his outreach plan, which a lot of churches would frown on, and start not here, but out there, meeting with people where they live, going to their home, befriending them, inviting them into your home, and befriending them. Now, what did the religious people think about what Jesus had done? Well, not much. And this is a pretty common trend. Jesus is about to be criticized. In fact, they're going to offer two criticisms. Now, you've got to ask yourself, if you're following the story, they suddenly start speaking. Here he is at the party. His disciples are with him at the party. They're surrounded by all these irreligious people. And suddenly, the religious leaders begin to express criticism right there at the party. So what was happening? Well, what was typical in that day and time is the homes didn't have doors. They were wide open. And people could come and go at will. And these religious leaders, if you look earlier in the chapter, they've come from all over Galilee. They've already witnessed him heal somebody. But now he's doing something that's really out of the box. And they offer two criticisms. And what are they doing? They come into the room and they go against the wall and they lean against the wall so that they're not involved in the party. They're watching the party. And now they're expressing criticism as the moral police of the moment of what Jesus is doing. And there's two criticisms. The first one is this. Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? He says that in verse 30. Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Don't you know, Jesus, you're not supposed to associate with people like that. And that's the first criticism. Here's the second criticism. Jesus, of course, answered them, and he says, well, because it's the sick that need a physician. I didn't come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Now, if they were really sharp, and obviously they weren't, the religious leader, somebody at the wall, 
should have thought for a moment and said, well, wait a minute. He only came for sick people. He only comes to deal with sinners, not righteous people. And if I'm sensitive at that moment, I've got to ask myself, I may not be associating with those people, but is there really fundamentally any difference between me and them? When it's all said and done, is there any difference between me and that person other than what God has done for me? Well, they weren't done. Jesus responds, but in verse 33, they have, they have a second criticism. They said, why do the disciples of John fast often and make prayers, and likewise those of the Pharisees, but yours eat and drink? You see, the Pharisees had developed this habit of fasting twice a week on Mondays and Thursdays. And if you were a good religious person, you fasted like that. And here comes John the Baptist, and they're the forerunner of the Messiah, and and they're announcing his coming, and people are excited about John the Baptist. And what is he doing? Well, he and his followers are fasting as well. But Jesus, your, your followers, they don't act very religious. Not only do you eat and drink with the wrong people, but you're eating and drinking. You're celebrating. You're, you're feasting. And you don't look very religious. The conflict and the attack on Jesus is the same kind of conflict that will attack anybody, any follower who is serious about being like Christ. The same criticism will erupt. There are plenty of churches that want to maintain their nice and neat group. And if you bring anyone different into the group, they will reject you and that person. What will happen if you and I start following Jesus into relationships with modern-day tax collectors and sinners? Who might they be? People who have been to jail? People with tattoos and piercings? People of color? People who are living together? People who get drunk on weekends? People who sleep around? People who live on government assistance as a way of life? people who use drugs, people who have had abortions, people who buy lottery tickets and go to casinos, people who go in and out of marriage like a revolving door, you will be criticized, your reputation will be trashed, and your relationships with so many existing churches and church members will be severed. Just try it if you don't believe me. So here's a summary of the criticisms. And these criticisms will follow every person who follows Jesus. Why don't you do what we do? And why don't you act like we act? So don't be surprised whenever this church steps out and reaches people who have not been acceptable to others. Expect the criticism. It's your way out of a religious rut as well. Secondly, abandon the religious rut-making forces in your life. You say, Don, do you sit around and make these phrases up? Well, they just come. Abandon the religious rut-making, not nut-making. Religious rut-making forces in your life. Listen to verse 36 again. Then he spoke a parable to them. No one puts a piece from a new garment on an old one. Otherwise, the new makes a tear, 
and also the piece that was taken out of the new does not match the old. And no one puts new wine into old wine skins, or else the new wine will burst the wine skins and be spilled, and the wine skins will be ruined. New patches, old garments, new wine, old wine skins. What is he talking about? What do the old cloth and the old wine skin represent? Let me give you what I believe they represent, and then I'll share with you why I believe that. I believe the old cloth and the old wineskin represent religious habits, man-made rules, and human traditions. Religious habits, man-made rules, and human traditions. Now, why do you believe that, Pastor? Let me tell you why. Not only is it obvious from the context of what Jesus is dealing with, the kind of criticism that he's getting right here in this passage, and immediately after it, he's criticized for his lack of Sabbath observance, not less than seven times in the scripture. He's not keeping the rules the way religious people have applied the Old Testament scriptures. He's not doing it. In Mark chapter 7, and Mark is careful to explain that the Pharisees have all these rules that they keep and, and that whenever they come from the market they wash their hands and they criticize Jesus and his disciples because they didn't wash their hands before they ate. And Jesus responds by quoting Isaiah. He says, well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites as it is written. Listen carefully. This people honors me with their lips but their hearts are far from me. And in vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. For laying aside the commandment of God, you hold the tradition of men. And so the rut-making forces in our life that cause us to miss the real deal are those religious things that we do, not out of a heart for God. The religious habits, the man-made rules, the human traditions, that's not done out of a heart for God. But because it's what our particular group does, or it's because of the way we were raised, and we don't find ourselves in a position where we pray about those things that we do or we think everybody's supposed to do. We're not seeking the Lord about it. We're not studying the scriptures to see where those things came from. And we tend to grab at a couple of verses and off we go to play scripture machine gun with the person that we disagree with. Or worse yet, I may actually know what the scripture says and choose not to do it and continue my practice, my belief, or my habit, whatever it is. This is what Jesus has in mind when he refers to the old cloth and the old wineskins, these religious habits, man-made rules, and human traditions. Now, what does the new wine represent? I believe the new wine represents Jesus himself. Jesus himself. Jesus and all that relates to him, his teaching, his Holy Spirit. Jesus is the new wine. And it represents him, it re represents his presence in the believer's life. And you say, well, why do you think that? In Acts chapter 2, verse 13, at Pentecost, when the believers were under the influence of the Holy Spirit, this freshly arrived Holy Spirit, and they're acting with such joy, what were they accused of? Do you remember? These people are full of new wine 
In Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18, the Apostle Paul says that we are never to be drunk with wine, but rather we are to be filled with the Holy Spirit of Jesus. Filled with the Holy Spirit of Jesus. On one hand, you can have alcohol where we are told that if, if we drive that way, we are driving under what? Under the influence. And, and he says, don't be under the influence of alcohol, but rather, he says, I want you to be under the influence of my Holy Spirit. Be filled with the Spirit. And he says it in such a way that literally it means be being filled with the Spirit constantly and continually. And he draws this analogy between what wine does to a human life and what the Holy Spirit does to a human life. And I could go on and on with, with Scripture references that connect this concept of the new wine to the presence and life of Jesus Christ and the believer through his Holy Spirit. Now, if Jesus is the new wine of Luke chapter 5, I think the question that you've got to understand, that you've got to ask and apply to this text, is why won't the old wineskins of religious habits, man-made rules, and human traditions, why won't the old wineskins hold or contain the new wine? You see, in Jesus' day, everybody understood the process of winemaking. Wine was a primary beverage. Water was not always good to drink, safe to drink. And so wine was plentiful, not as strong as modern-day wine, probably less than 12% alcohol content, but this is not the point. The point is, how was wine made? Well, they understood that if you took the grapes and you mashed them up and you put them inside a goat skin that there was a natural process of fermentation that would take place as the yeast reproduced. Now the yeast grow in the wild on the skin of the grape. You don't even have to add it to it. It grows wild on the grape and wine gains its flavor from the skin. And so they would mash up the grapes and the juice would collect in, a, in, in some kind of container and they would pour this off into a goat skin and the process of fermentation would take place. And there were two byproducts as the yeast reproduced and converted sugar into two things. There was alcohol and there was CO2, carbon dioxide. Now, to help us see this, I'm going to ask for a volunteer. And um, James, why don't you come up here? You look like a good volunteer this morning. <laughs> Brother, we haven't had you on up front and everybody yet, so this is a good time. And Why don't you come up here? What are you doing after church? You may have to change clothes. You may have to change clothes. Yeah. All right. Here's what we got. Hold on just a moment. I've got a bottle of water. And I got some a mystery tablet. Alka seltzer. Okay. We'll get this out just in case. How's that? Here's, here's what's really going to be important, okay? Did you bring that up here? Yeah, I brought my Bible. You might want to put it in your pocket, okay. just in case. All right. <laughs> All right, here we go. Here's what I need you to do. I need you to drop these as quickly as possible into that opening, okay? Like several at once, and if it gets out of hand, I'm just going to go ahead and stop you, okay? okay? All right, go ahead and put as many in there as you can, as quickly as you can. Ready? Don't worry about that one. Okay. 
Got some more? All right. Quickly, quickly. Better get some more in there. Okay, that's good enough. All right. Here, you hold that. Okay. Just hold that out there. Just hold it out there. <coughs> All right. This is working. Well, that's better than it did at home. Yeah, you added some more to this, didn't you? Okay. Well, you might want to hold the base of that balloon just in case. There we go. All right. What you are, what you are observing, Alka-Seltzer, those bubbles that it produces, guess what kind of gas it is? CO2. That's right. It's carbon dioxide. Is it still bubbling? Wow. Well, I better get the other ones out. Put these over here in case it gets away from us. That way I can put it in here. And uh, that way next service we'll have something. How's it doing? Whoa, that's getting bigger, isn't it? <laughs> isn't that amazing? Now, when a wineskin would experience the same thing, that wineskin would stretch and stretch and stretch and stretch. And as a, as a natural occurring material, it would stretch as far as it could, and that would be all it could do. Now, if you emptied that out and you did it again, unlike a balloon, it won't, it's not resilient. And, and if you put new wine into that old wineskin, it's already been stretched, already gone to its very, very limit. What do you imagine it's going to do? It's going to burst. It's going to explode. Almost kind of like that one. We'll just let set that one down. Thank you very much. Appreciate it. Give him a hand. Okay. We'll take this up later. If anybody has indigestion, we can help you. All right. Now let's apply this to what Jesus has said in this passage of Scripture. Remember we said that the old wineskins, the old patch, excuse me, the old garment represented religious habits, man-made rules, and human traditions. Listen to me carefully. If Jesus is the new wine, and he represents life, everything else is man-made, everything else that is not of him is not life. Which one do you want? And in the presence of Jesus Christ, what is going to happen to everything you think and practice that is not aligned with him. What's going to happen? It's going to fracture it. That's why when historically churches or whole regions have experienced the presence of God, we call it revival or spiritual awakening, that's why in the presence of God we read about the wonderful things that have happened when God has manifested his presence. But one of the things that we don't hear enough about is how many people said I don't want any part of that and churches would divide and split over the activity in the presence of God and so I want to call upon you as my brother in Christ or my sister in Christ to make a decision today to make a determined decision today that I want the real deal I want nothing less than to know him on this side of heaven, 
all that I can know of him, as much as I can know of him, and nothing less than Jesus. Jesus is always going to challenge those rut-making influences and those ruts in your life and in my life. He is relentless. So what does it take to fully experience Jesus and escape the religious rut? Let me close with this. Number three, you and I need to yield to the active presence of Jesus in life. Yield to the active presence of Jesus in your life. When Gail and I first married, and even when I was in school and college, I didn't grow up in a Baptist context. I was raised in another religious tradition altogether. And everything that I believed pretty much up to that point, I had been, been, had been shared with me by others, had been told to me by the leaders of my church or by my family, about what I should believe. And even as a young person, I experienced some incredible challenges in my life, and as I experienced those challenges, I found that that superstructure of belief that I'd been handed off to me was inadequate to handle life as I was experiencing it. And so one of the things that was absolutely thrilling to me when I came to know Christ in the context of a small Baptist church in Dayton, Ohio, was that in that little storefront Baptist mission, listening to the scripture being preached each week, going home most Sunday nights with the preacher and pummeling him with questions about God and about the Bible. And each time I asked a question, he would take his Bible and he would turn to a passage of scripture and he would say, read this, and he'd hand me his Bible. I'd ask him another question. He'd turn to something else. And he would say, read this. And he didn't tell me what to believe. He showed me what God's word said. And he let me read it for myself. And I want to encourage you that as Jesus speaks to us in these verses, that you would become a person who is in pursuit of knowing the truth as God has revealed the truth in his word. And nothing less than that. Here are two things I think you need in order to yield to the active presence of Jesus. First of all, I need a new wineskin response to Jesus. A new wineskin response to Jesus. And you say, what is that? Well, that balloon, when it was under pressure, what did it do? Did it hold its shape? Say, I'm not going to expand. I'm not going to get bigger. I'm not going to respond. I'm not going to change. Did it do that? No. Under the pressure of what was inside, the balloon expanded and the wineskin expands. And under the gentle pressure of the Holy Spirit inside you and me, we will have to adjust. We will have to change. We will have to yield. We will have to say, yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. And you and I cannot experience the presence of Christ unless we are willing to yield to the inner presence of Christ. And wherever he leads us and whatever he says to do and whatever he calls you to do, your response is to be flexible. That's what the old wineskin couldn't do. It couldn't flex. 
It couldn't stretch. It couldn't go where the pressure was leading it to go. It could only blow up. Second thing that you and I need to fully yield to Jesus and to live this kind of Christianity that he's called us to is we need a taste for new wine. Look at the very last verse that we read, and I'm all the way in Acts, just a moment. Acts chapter 5, verse 39. Listen to what he says. And no one, having drunk old wine, immediately desires new. For he says, the old is better. Now this story is told in three of the Gospels. It's not in John, but it's in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. This is the only Gospel account, though, where verse 39 appears. And so Luke is helping us understand something very profound that Jesus said. He, he must have said this probably more than once, but Luke captured it, and Luke put it down. No one, having drunk old wine, immediately desires new, for he says the old is better. What is he saying? I'm going to tell you what he's saying. He's saying that religion will dull your taste for Jesus. You can be intensely devoted to your way of life that you've grown accustomed to and that you're comfortable with, or you can have a taste for the presence of Jesus in your life who may light up your mind at any moment and leads you to someone or to do something or to speak to someone or to take on a new assignment or to pick up and move in a way that you never imagined. That's the kind of people he seeks. Now, is the old way better? It sure feels like it. It worked for a season. It may have accomplished some things in the past. And one of the dangers that we have just as human beings, not just Baptists, but just as human beings, is something worked once because God took somebody and anointed them and used them and gave it a supernatural effectiveness. And we all saw that and we said, ha, ha, we got it. And we do it again and we do it again and we do it again. And even though it stops being effective, even though that anointing is no longer there, no longer is there a supernatural activity associated with that activity, we keep doing it. Instead of saying, Lord, today, what do you want? What do you want now? If all you've been doing is eating the hamburgers of religiosity, spiritual steak is something really different. And it may not feel good, and it may be scary. But it's where he wants to take each of us. A moment-by-moment moment reliance and dependence on him. Be satisfied with nothing less. This morning, we're going to have a time of response. In the Baptist church, this is part of our worship. It's a way that we respond to him. For some of you, in the next few minutes, you're going to check out. You're going to say, well, we're done now. Preacher's through. And we're going to sing because David always leads us in a song when we do our response. You say, I'm going to sing this song, but I'm already in Bible study. I hope you're planning to go to Bible study. Say, I'm already in Bible study. I'm already down the hall. And let me ask you not to check out. 
Don't get in that rut. You know, in this moment when we respond, what are we doing? We're saying, Lord, come, come into this room, come among us, and Lord, speak to me. Speak to me. How do you want me to respond to what you have said in your word? Speak to me. And the Lord might lead you to just bow your head in the pew. You may not even be able to stand. You may just need to sit. He may lead you to get up out of the pew and come and kneel at the steps at the front. That's a way, sometimes an outward, definite way of responding to God and coming and just praying for a few moments at the front, saying, Dear God, I heard what you said to me, and my response to you is. You may need to come and pray with one of the pastors who will be standing here. And just say, look, I just need you to pray for me and maybe just give them a, a word of direction or no word of direction. Just say, pray for me. And we'll pray for you. Maybe there's someone else sitting somewhere here in the auditorium and you know they have a need and you just feel led to go and pray for them. You may just need to get up and walk across the room and, and sit with them and grab their hand and say, look, I just need to pray for you, brother. I need to pray for you, sister. I don't know how he's going to lead you. But I know that if you and I will step out of the rut, he'll speak. If you're here and you do not know Christ as your Lord and Savior, he is alive and he is real. And he came into this world 2,000 years ago on a rescue mission for people just like me and just like you. People who are sinners, people who have been overwhelmed by sin, people who think they're doing what they want to do and they're pursuing what they want to do in life, but what we discover is that we consistently mess up and we, we make just not only mistakes, we hurt others, we hurt people, we hurt ourselves, and we realize that God is not in our life, he's not first place, he's nowhere, and we're just kind of doing our own thing. And when you and I realize that we can't do life without him, the Bible calls it repentance when you and I turn from a life without God, where all I do is mess up, all I do is displease him, but I also hurt myself. It's not life the way God intended. And when I turn from life without God, and I turn to life with God, that's called repentance. Faith is the other half of that. Faith is where I put my trust into Jesus Christ. The Bible says he died on the cross for your sins. Plural, all your sins, every individual sin, past sins, sins today, sins you haven't even committed yet. Jesus died for all of those sins. Because you could never do anything about any of them. And to prove that Jesus paid the penalty for your sin, that he took your place, and that all those sins were punished and dealt with, God raised him from the dead. And this morning, if you will publicly acknowledge him and come and place your trust in him, the Bible says, whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. There are pastors here who will counsel you. And like that preacher did years ago, they'll let you read it for yourself in God's word. And you can leave here this morning with a new life and your sins forgiven as a Christ follower. Our Father and our God, we thank you, Lord, for your word and its power to change us and transform us. We thank you, Lord, that we desperately, desperately desire for you to come and that that is a gift from you, that we want you at all. We pray, Lord, that during these moments, your Holy Spirit would come 
And that as you have spoken to us through song, if you, as you have spoken to us through your word, you would now speak to every heart individually. That is our heart cry. Holy Spirit, come as we respond to you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Would you stand with me? Just as I am without one plea, but that thy blood was shed for me, and that thou bidst me Just as I am and fading not to rid my soul of one dark thought to thee whose blood can cleanse each What is he saying? How are you responding? Would you just bow your head and close your eyes for just a moment? We'll continue singing in just a moment. Would you just bow your head and close your eyes? Lord, I heard what you were saying. How do you want me to respond?